This is Viewpoint with attorney and author Chuck Chrismeyer. Viewpoint is a one-hour talk show confronting the issues of America's heart and home. And now with today's edition of Viewpoint, here is Chuck Chrismeyer. Get wisdom and with all your wisdom, get understanding. We like to talk a lot about knowledge. In fact, we're told that in the end of the age, the prophet Daniel said that at the end of time, knowledge would be increased. Increased dramatically, indeed it is. But it seems like the more knowledge we have, the less wisdom we have. Have you noticed that? And so today on Viewpoint, we're going to explore wisdom. What is wisdom anyway? Well, we know, most of us listening to this program know that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Well, maybe, just maybe, lurking in that phrase is the answer why we seem to have so little wisdom these days. Maybe we've just abandoned the fear of the Lord. Maybe not only in the schoolhouse or the courthouse or the White House, but maybe in the church house, maybe even in your house. Who knows? On the other hand, we all want to see our lives work out well. We want to see things come about in a way that we have an expectation that there is something called the good life or a good life. But what does it look like? How do you get there? What does it mean? And why is it that it seems to always filter through our fingers like sand through a sieve and we never seem to quite grasp it? Well, today on Viewpoint, we're going to be talking about that. We're going to be talking about this idea of wisdom. Wisdom. What in the world is wisdom? Well, we know that the Bible contains what is called wisdom literature, a series of books right there in the middle of the Old Testament. They tell us what it looks like to live the life the way God intended. And it tackles all kinds of difficult questions, all kinds of things about our lives, And in the New King James Version, I normally use the regular King James Version, but in the New King James Version of the Bible, the word wisdom actually appears 227 times throughout all 66 books of the Bible. 99 of those instances are contained in the books of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Job. So you can well understand why they're called the wisdom literature. And all of these books grapple with The question is, what does life look like when we live it the way God intended? Now, we think about Solomon. We think about him as quite, he's he's the wise guy of Scripture, Solomon. The wise, he wasn't just wise, he was the wisest king. And God gave him special insight into both how the world works and how people work. He spoke, it said, 3,000 Proverbs. We don't know what all those are, but we do know a whole bunch of them there recorded in the book of Proverbs that talk about wisdom, practical, down-to-earth wisdom. And that's one of the reasons why my wife, who is somewhat of an exhorter type, loves to read the book of Proverbs. So we can read through the epistles, and then she says, can we read Proverbs and Psalms? So we'll read Proverbs, and then we'll go back to the a next iteration, maybe uh, the, the prophetic books, or maybe the uh, Torah. Maybe we'll look at some other. Then she said, can we go back to the Psalms? So right now we're in the Psalms, and you find an awful lot 
of wisdom in the Psalms. So there's a reason why many of us have resorted to the book of Proverbs and the book of Psalms. But, unfortunately, so many, when they're going to Proverbs or going to Psalms, they're looking for something that gives them comfort in what they're doing, but not so much looking for what God wants them to do or how he wants them to live. So today on Viewpoint, we want to focus on that. How can we have, as followers of Christ, how can we have a life that would be pleasing to God and fulfilling to us the good life? Our special guest today on Viewpoint, Ralph Hawkins. I don't think Ralph has ever joined us here on this program, but if he ever has anything else to come up with other than this book called Ancient Wisdom for the Good Life, then uh, I would welcome him to come back because he's written such a wonderful book that helps us to understand this issue of wisdom and uh, why it is that it seems so elusive. Ralph, it's good to have you on the program. Thank you so much, Chuck. I'm so delighted to be here with you on Viewpoint. Well, uh, first of all, I'd like to know uh, what actually prompted you uh, to write this book, was there something unique, something special, or would you just look? Were you just looking for something to write about? Well, that's a great question, <clears throat> and uh, I don't tell the story in the book of how I became interested in this. But it was actually when I was 16 years old, <clears throat> I um, I ran across a book on my grandparents' bookshelf, which uh, called the Psychology of Winning. And, uh, yeah. How is that going to lead you to the Bible, my friend? Well, I read that book, and it had a profound impact on me. It was written by a social scientist named Dennis Waitley, and uh-huh. I went on to read many of his books over the uh, later years. But um, when I first started as a pastor, and my first full-time pastoral job in 1995, I was still rereading that book. I read it about once a year for years. And um, as I read that, I thought, you know, each of the, in that book, he had the 10 qualities of a total winner. And uh, as I read that book, I thought, you know, each of these qualities is taught in the wisdom literature. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm going to write a sermon series <clears throat> elucidating these ideas through scripture mm-hmm. and i did that in 95 and then i went when i went to my next church uh, five years later i rewrote it and preached it again and i did that over and over over the years well have you figured it out yet <laughs> have you gotten have you gotten a measure of wisdom that can count as wisdom well yes I've, what i've figured out is that the uh, wisdom literature has rich depth that um, uh, I've, I've only begun to uh, plumb in this book. So we've only just begun. You know, uh, it's in 1995, May 7th, that we launched this radio program. So, uh, yeah, yeah. So uh, we got two things going there in 1995. And I'm so glad that you did begin this because as I have uh, read your book, I realize that your thinking, what God has revealed to you, has also been running parallel to what God has been revealing to me over these years. And, uh, 
you know, as I look at the broader body of Christ, and I've grown up in the church, my father was a pastor for 50 yeah. years. Uh, his parents were both pastors. My wife's, my, my mother's parents were both uh, leaders in the Salvation Army. And uh, so I have a heritage in that regard. But what I have realized over the years from coast to coast that the church as a whole, instead of walking increasingly in the wisdom of the Lord, has actually decreased in walking in the wisdom of the Lord. And that's really problematic to me. That's a very troubling thing. And that's one of the reasons we do this radio program. We'll be right back after this, friends. Our guest, Ralph Hawkins, his book, Ancient Wisdom. We'll be right back. Once upon a time, children could pray and read their Bibles in school. Divorces were practically unknown, as was child abuse. In our once great America, virginity and chastity were popular virtues, and homosexuality was an abomination. So what happened in just one generation? Hi, I'm Chuck Chris Meyer, and I urge you to join me daily on Viewpoint, where we discuss the most challenging issues touching our hearts and homes. Could America's moral slide relate to the Fourth Commandment? Listen to Viewpoint on this radio station or anytime at saveus.org. A famous American philosopher once says, in a sense, knowledge shrinks as wisdom grows. He says, you cannot be wise without some basis of knowledge, but you may easily acquire a lot of knowledge and remain almost bare of wisdom. Wow. So wisdom must have something to do with the application, the proper application of knowledge not from our viewpoint, but from the Creator's viewpoint, from God's viewpoint. And that's why we say every day here on this program, Viewpoint Determines Destiny. If our viewpoint doesn't line up with God's viewpoint on the issues of life, destiny rides in the balance. In some way, you may think it's little, but in some way, that destiny lies in the balance because it's directing our pathway and when our pathway doesn't line up with God's ways, we end up maybe in a ditch, maybe in the drink somewhere, maybe over a cliff. But it isn't pretty, and it's certainly not the good life. So our guest today, Ralph Hawkins, writing this wonderful book called Ancient Wisdom for the Good Life. And uh, uh, that's a good marketable title there, uh, Ralph. But... When you go into your book, you find out your book really is substantive. It really is. It People have a quest for a good life, but how to get there remains totally elusive, doesn't it? Yeah, you're so right. So yeah. you and I are both in Virginia. And uh, what I've discovered when we first came to Virginia, it seemed like there was a lot more wisdom here than there have been in California, where I practiced law for 20 years. But over these last 30 years that I've been in Virginia, I've seen this state lose its wisdom hand over fist. And we're ending up in more and more and more difficulties, more and more troubles, looking more like what the state of California looked like 30 years ago. It seems that wisdom, what is it about human nature, even in this country that claims to be a nation under God, what is it about wisdom we don't much care for? 
You know, that's a great question, Chuck. I, I think that um, probably what drives the American quest, you, you mentioned knowledge and how it's different from wisdom a few minutes ago. I, I think the American quest for the good life is motivated by, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's motivated by uh, the, the this typical American desires for material comforts and luxuries. Uh, you know, In other words, what's commonly known as the American dream. Yeah. If you look up <laughs> on the dictionary, what is the good life, you know, you'll find definitions like a life abounding in material comforts and mm-hmm. luxury mm-hmm. Uh, or the kind of life that people with a lot of money are able to have. Right. Somebody who, somebody who grew up poor but is now living the good life. That's what Miriam Webster says. So, yeah, I think there's a lot of confusion about the good life out there. You know, in, in the introduction to your book, uh, you immediately captured my attention. Uh, you talked about this uh, drug lord, Pablo Escobar, who uh, uh, actually died the very year that we launched Save America Ministries in 1993. And uh, he became one of the wealthiest criminals in the history of, the, of mankind. You see, he was worth about $30 billion uh, at his uh, death, and he owned properties, houses, cars. He, he, he had everything that would have described the good life, but it wasn't good at all. He had it all, but didn't have anything. Yeah, yeah. That's the conundrum of this issue of wisdom, isn't it? It really is. And people throughout history have been on a quest to find the good life and figure out what it is. You know, and if you go back, for example, to the classical period, you can find uh, in classical philosophy, the good life was a really popular topic Mm -hmm. among the classical philosophers like Plato and Socrates and Aristotle. But they all believed that the good life was out of reach for the common man. They believed that it could only be attained by an elite class of philosophers. Mm. And yeah, and that's what makes the the Bible's wisdom literature so unique. In ancient Israel, the sages taught that wisdom is for everybody. And you look, for example, at a passage like Proverbs 8, where wisdom is personified as Lady Wisdom, and she stands out at the crossroads in the town, and she calls out to everybody who's passing by and urges them to come in and learn from her. Mm-hmm. And Proverbs 8, 4, and 5, she shouts, To you, O people, I call, and my cry is to all that live. O simple ones, learn prudence. Acquire intelligence, you who lack it. So her invitation is different from that of Plato, Socrates, and Aristotle. She calls on everybody with the promise that anybody can grasp God's wisdom. Anybody can understand it. On the other hand, uh, you do quote... uh in your introduction to your book, wisdom for Socrates uh, required the possession of knowledge, and not just any knowledge, but that which provides the basis for infallibly good judgment in decisions uh, pertinent to how one should live. Wisdom, then, is the possession of such knowledge, plus the disposition and skill to use this knowledge in the right ways. Well, that's not too bad, Except Socrates took poison. That wasn't too wise. It killed him. And then he said the knowledge has to be infallible. 
Well, there's only uh, one infallible knowledge, and that's God's knowledge. Right. And so it seems to me that rather than trying to dredge up through human experience and so on, uh, the knowledge and wisdom, maybe it would be most appropriate and a short circuit for all of that to go straight to what God had to say about knowledge and about wisdom. Right. Yeah, you're so right. Yeah. Um, yeah, wisdom in the in the Bible is a little bit different because um, um, in Hebrew, the, the word for wisdom is chokmah, and it, it was not viewed as abstract knowledge. Mm-hmm. So, so, so much of ancient philosophy, wisdom is abstract, but in Hebrew, it was not viewed that way. It was literally viewed as skill for living. In other words, applied knowledge. Yeah, applied knowledge. Applied yeah. knowledge. And you know what's interesting, uh, Ralph, is that so much of the teaching and preaching in our age is what I call informational. In other words, it's knowledge. It's knowledge about the Bible, knowledge about God, but it's not teaching us who really who God is and how to have that relationship with him except by making a confession of faith. But in terms of actually applying that knowledge, it just doesn't seem to happen. And I think one of the reasons it doesn't happen is because pastors intuitively are aware that people don't really want to grapple with how to live. They just want to know, at least not in the applied sense, they just want to know facts. And then they feel they're very religious. How do you respond to that? Well, um, yeah, I, I think you're right. Often people think of the Christian faith as a set of propositions mm-hmm. that are designed to be accepted and believed. Yeah, if we and, quote the Apostles' Creed, a creed we're in like Flint. Yeah, if, yeah. If you just affirm some some uh, propositions, you've done religion. But religion is, is so much more than that, and that's what's so great about the wisdom literature is that it teaches us um, how to live. And um, biblical wisdom is it's also about the ways of things, mm-hmm. how things are meant to exist and work and function properly. And even more, it's how to exist, work, and function properly in light of who God is. And how Absolutely. Is. And, and that's why... Uh, the first third of your book is foundational to everything else. And we're going to get into the depths of that uh, a bit in just a few minutes. But I want to make your book available uh, to our listeners because it is such a good, good book. $23 will put this $25 book in your hands, friends. Ancient wisdom for the good old life. Actually, it's the wisdom of God from the Bible. And uh, it's set out in such a way that... Uh, uh, it puts it in a context that's different than we normally think, than is normally presented in our churches. It's totally biblical and will change our lives if we're willing to embrace it. $23 on our website, saveus.org. Saveus.org. You can call us at 1 800 Save USA. That's 1 800 Save USA. Or write to us at Save America Ministries. P.O. Box 70879, Richmond, Virginia, 23255. You're writing a check at $5 for postage and handling. Okay. Now, it seems 
that there is a phrase that the wisdom literature tells us is at the very heart of all wisdom. And that without this understanding, there is really no wisdom available to us. And that phrase is called the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning or foundation of all wisdom. Do you agree with that? Yes, I do, Chuck. Uh, The fear of the Lord is such an important concept in the wisdom literature, and uh, it's not a negative thing. I think when listeners hear that, uh, or or when they read Scripture and they run across that phrase, the fear of the Lord, they might think of that as a negative thing. Um, Well, the reason we we think of it as a negative thing is because we're predisposed to do that given American culture today. Well, that's true. But But the very word fear, you know, it's usually connected with the basic human instinct of, you know, to run away or to defend yourself or to retaliate. Uh huh. Okay. Uh, and so there may be this idea that, you know, I don't want uh, a relationship with the Lord that is that is based on fear uh, in some negative sense. Um, and fear is a good translation of the Hebrew word, but it's those it, it's negative connotations that we think of. Those don't capture the sense of what the biblical writers want from believers. Well, the uh, same is true of the word belief. The, uh, he, the meaning of the Hebrew word belief has very little to do with information. Uh, it has everything to do with transformation. Yeah. It has everything to do with taking what you say you believe in the word of God right. and living it out in your life. Right, right. Yeah, and, and some contemporary translations have have um, provided alternate translations for the Hebrew word that's translated traditionally as fear, like the New Century Version renders it respect, uh, the Good News Translation renders it reverence. Um, in the book, I suggest translating the Hebrew word as reverential awe. I think that's a very good, that's about as good as you can get. Here's the problem with that. Uh, George Gallup, back in 1995, spoke to the religious uh, publication group and uh, said, you know what? We, as Americans, still claim to revere the Bible. We just don't read it. Right. So, in other words, you can revere God and pay no attention to him. So you have this sense of reverence for God, but not for the life that God is requiring in us. In other words, there's no transformation. It's all information that leads nowhere. Well, yeah, I hear what you're saying, Chuck. Um, that's why I, I render it reverential awe. So right. I mean, if we, like, I'm in awe of my wife. <laughs> And that leads me to want to, uh, you know, to be in a, in a devoted a relationship of devotion with her, committed uh-huh. to serve her. I think if we're if we're in, have reverential awe for the Lord, that captures the positive sense of what uh, the response to the Lord is looking for. And then, but uh, then we run into the problem of the word awe. Mm-hmm. For instance, we sing a song: "Our God is an awesome God." Well, right. that's good. That's good, but then we hear people say, 
as an interjection in their conversations, that's awesome. That's awesome. Right, right. They're not. They don't mean awesome at all. They mean <laughs> good. They make a like it, or that's cool, or that. They, so we've actually demeaned the words so that they do not connect in our hearts with who God is. Yeah, you're right. We'll say this ice cream is awesome, or my dog is awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Trish, finding a word that really captures the sense. Of what <laughs> well, you really what tried. I'm, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what I'm trying to do is capture the, the positive sense of the response to the Lord. Um, you know, there, there is fear can be both. Uh, if you define the word fear, there can be negative uh, ways of understanding fear. There can be negative fear, and there can be positive fear. And we'll talk so about that when we get back. Stay tuned, friends. Ancient wisdom. We need it. There is so much more about Chuck Chris Meyer and Save America Ministries on our website, saveus.org. For example, under the marriage section, God has marriage on his mind. Chuck has some great resources to strengthen your marriage. First off, a fact sheet on the state of the marital union, a fact sheet on the state of ministry, marriage, and morals. SaveUS.org. Marriage, divorce, and remarriage. What does the Bible really teach about this? Find all of this at SaveUS.org. Also, A Letter to Pastors, The Hosea Project, SaveUS.org, and many more resources to strengthen your marriage. It's all on Chuck's website, SaveUS.org. Again, you can listen to Chuck's Viewpoint broadcast live and archived. Save America Ministries website at SaveUS.org. Welcome back to Viewpoint. I'm Chuck Chrismar. I want to introduce you a new coin, a new coin today. Here it is. We'll talk about heads and tails, but they're not going to be any heads. They're not going to be any tails. It's going to be a whole new coin. Here it is. On one side of the coin is the fear of the Lord. On the other side of the coin is the love of the Lord. Without both, There is no legitimate wisdom with regard to God. The heart that both fears and loves God at one and the same time is not divided, but is unified in a single faith, religious response to God. How's that, Ralph? I think that's really great. Yeah, the, um, yeah, people sometimes think of fear as, diametrically opposed to uh, love for the Lord. But in the Old Testament, not just the wisdom literature, um, the idea is is that uh, the fear of the Lord leads to the love of the Lord. It undergirds the love of the Lord. Exactly, exactly. In fact, you're not going to obey your father or your mother. You're not going to obey them out of love until you first obey them out of fear or deep respect because they have authority over you. Right. When you get to the end of the book, this idea that that, uh, the fear of the Lord and the uh, love of the Lord are related is repeated throughout Scripture. If you go all the way back to the Pentateuch, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 and 13, Mm -hmm. which is a very famous passage that's often referred to as the Shema. Right. Um, 
it summarizes what God's expectations are for his people. And uh, in the passage, Moses uh, says this. He says, so now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God really require of you? Well, here it is. Only to fear the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, mm. and so on and so forth. Yeah, so so the heart that fears the Lord on the one hand and loves the Lord on the other is not a heart that is divided, but it's unified in a single uh, reverential response to God. I'm thinking about the Psalms. David writes, unite my heart to fear your name. Unite my heart to fear your name. Now, why would David write that if that was not a good thing? Right. Yeah, you're so right. Yeah, David understood this, that uh, the fear of the Lord did not mean running away from God, but it meant running to God out of reverential awe for the Lord. So you cannot have a true and legitimate relationship with the Lord unless your heart is united in both the fear and the love of the Lord. I don't believe so. Um, When we go back to the great Old Testament theologians of prior ages, um, they often wrote about the fear of the Lord. And um, I'm trying to think of, uh, there was one, great uh, Old Testament theologian, he said that the fear of the Lord was um, Israel's primary response to God, and it undergirded everything. And uh, in philosophy, there's a field called epistemology. Epistemology is um, how we know what we know. And he said that fear of the Lord provided the uh, foundation for ancient, ancient Israel's epistemology. In other words, the way that they understood the world, perceived the world, and knew the world was built on their fear of the Lord. Their, exactly. their understanding of who the Lord was and, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the uh, magnitude of who he was and the implications of that affected how they understood the world, how they knew the world, how they related to what they knew about the world. See, Ralph, did you know that every promise of God, including salvation itself, is predicated on the foundation of the fear of the Lord. Every single promise. I discovered that in writing my book, The Secret of the Lord. The secret of the Lord is for them who fear him, and to them he will show or manifest his covenant. Uh, Uh It's foundational to understanding his covenant, to understanding everything about God, to understanding God's ways, to being a doer of the word and not a hearer only. It's, it's foundation to every single promise of God. Is that that well, makes it sound pretty pretty awesome to me and something highly desirable. Yeah, yeah, I think that's absolutely true. I, I haven't gone through it and thought about it in quite that way. But well, that's why you need to read my book, man. I would like to read book. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, right. let's, let's uh, shift from that foundation, because we know the wisdom leisure over and over tells us the fear of the Lord is the beginning or foundation of wisdom. So let's start applying some of this. And uh, in your book, the rest of the book uh, is based upon application 
of uh, wisdom in so many different areas of life. One of those has to do with the word integrity. And the word integrity has lost its integrity in our uh, our society today, hasn't it? I think you're right. It has. I mean, just yeah. look at what's happening in the news. The legal profession has lost its integrity. The government lost its integrity. Even our libraries have lost their integrity. Right, right. You're so right. Yeah, and I think recovering integrity starts with, guess what? Renewing our belief that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Oh, man, do we have to go back to that again? (laughs) Yeah. Well, in other words, it's not so negative after all. No, no, no. Yeah, it's very positive. And if you look at how ancient Israel sages talked about the fear of the Lord, you'll see that, again, they believed there was a very close relationship between the fear of the Lord and love and reverence for his law. So it makes sense that renewing integrity would begin with the renewal of the fear of the Lord. All right, here's an interesting way to apply this. Uh, In 1973, there was a fella by the name of Carl Menninger. And he, he wrote a book called Whatever Became of Sin. And I don't think he was a Christian. I think he was a Jewish man. Uh, whatever He was a, a psychologist or a psychiatrist. Whatever Became of Sin. So he says the decline of integrity he attributes to the abandonment of the concept of sin in our culture. Right. Now let's track that now to uh, the 1990s when uh, Dr. Robert Schuller the Crystal Cathedral guy uh, declared that it was abuse to tell people they were sinners because what they really need is more self-esteem. That shows you the amazing trajectory of the abandonment of the fear of the Lord, which leads us to understand sin against the Lord and why we need to repent. So the whole concept of the gospel and the need for salvation was completely undermined by the abandonment of the fear of the Lord. Yeah, yeah, you're so right. And uh, but it but it can't but integrity can't be renewed without restoring a sense of the fear of the Lord. I think, for example, of Psalm 34 uh, verses 11 through 22, mm-hmm. where the psalmist invites children to come to him <clears throat> so that he can teach them the fear of the Lord. <clears throat> and then he, once he does that, he begins to teach them the fear of the Lord, and then that leads him into teaching them about the importance of God's law. Mm. So you can only, the, the God's law will only be received and obeyed by those who have a foundation of the fear of the Lord. Exactly. Uh, yeah. When you get to the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, where the writer has you know, spent the entire book on this quest for the good life, <clears throat> and he's come up empty with uh, all of these various avenues he's pursued. He says at the end in Ecclesiastes twelve thirteen, he says, well, what I've discovered is that the whole duty of, of man is to fear God and to keep his commandments. So fearing God will enable one, uh, drive one, compel one to, to obey. Right. And guess what? Guess what? The word obey is considered a four-letter word by the church today. Do you know that over the past eight or ten years, I have asked numerous Christian pastors, parachurch leaders, and so on, 
on this program, what is the most hated word in the church today? And all but one of them said, obey. Mm, The only word that Jesus said would please God and please him. And I believe the reason for that is we abandoned the fear of the Lord. You abandoned the fear of the Lord, and obedience now has a bad name, a bad rap, too. Yeah, if we don't if we don't have a reverential awe of the Lord, if we don't we don't know who He is, we don't revere Him. We're not in awe of Him. We're not going to care what the Lord wants. Yeah, <laughs> it, it, yeah. The On the other the hand, the Apostle Paul says it is the is it's God who is working in us both to will and to do of His good pleasure. But we can reject it. Right. Right. Yeah. So He wants us to have as you put it, the good life. He wants us to walk in his ways. He wants us to honor him. He wants our lives to be full and complete. But we got to do it his way. Right. Yeah. I mean, didn't didn't uh, the scripture say there in Isaiah, my ways are not your ways, saith the Lord? <clears throat> That's true. I would stress, though, that, um, you know, if, we are working from the foundation of the fear of the Lord. We have a reverential awe for the Lord. We love the Lord. Right. Then what we'll find is that his ways become a delight to us. And, uh, you know, in the, in the wisdom literature talks about that. Um, I can't tell it's, it's on the tip of my tongue, but I can't tell you which chapter and verse it is in the Proverbs. But, uh, well, how about Psalm 119 where well, David I'm, says, I meditate and delight. I meditate on your word, I delight. Meditate and delight. Meditate and delight. Meditate and delight. I delight to do your will, oh my God. Right. Yeah, I was was just about to go there, but there's one proverb where it says that uh, the man or the woman who is uh, living according to wisdom will find their delight in the Torah. Uh, Mm -hmm. I can't remember the chapter first. But yeah, Psalm 119 is the longest psalm in the entire psalter it's 176 verses and it is the entirety of that psalm it's a wisdom absolutely we'll be right back after this friends ancient wisdom for the good life have you ever considered what the early church was like Many people are developing a heart longing for greater fulfillment in our practices as Christians. A recent study showed 53,000 people a week are leaving the back door of America's churches in frustration. What is going on? Why has there not been even a 1% gain among followers of Christ in the last 25 years? Could it be that God is seeking to restore first century Christianity for the 21st century? Jesus said, I'll build my church. Is Christ by his spirit stirring to prepare the church for the 21st century? The early church prayed together and broke bread from house to house. They were family, and it was said by all who observed, behold how they love one another. Incredible. But the same can be found right now. Go to saveus.org and click Sell Church. We can revive first century Christianity for the 21st century. It's about people, not programs. It's about a body, not a building. That's saveus.org. Click Sell Church. All right, my friends, we've got to get very serious here in this final segment of the program today. We've laid a strong foundation. We've repeated the foundation in some application with regard to integrity. And now we need to talk about some other things 
uh, in short order that show how the wisdom literature, God's wisdom, speaks into so many areas of our life. For instance, starting in the late 1980s and early 1990s came the warning of an epidemic of loneliness in America. Now, how is that possible? How would that be possible? We were supposed to be so family-oriented, and we say that the family is the building block of the society, and so on. How could that possibly happen? Could it well, be that, that we abandoned we abandoned the wisdom of the Lord, and the net result was increasing loneliness? What say you, Ralph? Yeah, you're so right. There's been a decline in community in this country for decades. Um, there's what is now a classic book in sociology. Uh, it was written in 2000, uh, 2000 by a Harvard sociologist named Robert Putnam. Oh, yeah. He was a real yeah. bowler, wasn't he? <laughs> I never yeah. could figure out why he talked called his book Bowling Alone. Bowling Alone. Well, because, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's very much um, uh, tracking the collapse of American community, which is something that's been happening since about 1980. Uh, Americans have just become increasingly disconnected from family, friends, neighbors, community structures whether it's the PTA or the church or recreation clubs or service clubs. Well, the breakdown of our marriages didn't help any of that, did it? No, it certainly didn't. Didn't the wisdom yeah. literature speak to our marriages? Uh, the wisdom literature has a lot to say about marriage, and it sees marriage as the foundation of a healthy society. Um, yeah, Mar- communities are built on uh, uh, really built on solid marriages. Yeah, solid marriages. Well, we used to believe that in this country. We still verbalize it, but not so much anymore, uh, because we've abandoned the fear of the Lord. We thought that was a bad thing, and so right. now we've completely re- reconstituted what a good thing is, and uh, Satan has done his number in uh, deceiving us. And he's changed our speech. We're not speaking straightly anymore. Uh, uh, we call right. that which is black, white, that which is white, black. Uh, does yeah. the wisdom leisure, literature speak to our speech? <laughs> it sure does. But I, I'd like to just go back and emphasize the family for a minute. All right. You know, the, the family is so profoundly important. And uh, I, I want to emphasize it because it's on the decline today. It's been on. It's been in decline since about the 1960s. Yeah. But ancient Israel's sages they viewed the family as holding the pivotal place in society, mm-hmm. and it was viewed as so important that it actually features in three of the Ten Commandments. And after the fifth commandment is given, the text adds that the result of strong families in society is that, quote, you will live long in the land. Mm-hmm. That's, uh, and what that means is that strong families provide the foundation for healthy communities and produce a stable society. So it's imperative that um, we in the church focus on uh, encouraging the formation of families, encouraging our young people to get married, uh, uh, teaching them the value of building a family, and so on and so forth. 
No question about it. It even talks about uh, child discipline. Uh, Folly is bound in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. And so we've had modern philosophies. We have a new one that's come out that we're going to be talking about. Uh, It has a special name. I think it's called uh, uh, Pleasant Parenting or something like that. It's... (laughs) Maybe it's child-centered parenting. No, it's 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 beyond that now. Oh. <laughs> it's just like it, it, it's as if we're running as fast as we can away from the wisdom of the Lord. Right. <laughs> so much for man's wisdom, huh? Okay. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. the uh, The wisdom literature speaks so much about sex. That some people have actually called it uh, semi-pornographic. Uh-huh. <laughs> it, it talks about a young man who's got his eyes on this frisky filly out there, or on some prostitute, and uh, there are numerous, numerous warnings about that in the book of Proverbs. So, uh, you know, if, if we're really training up our kids, our young people, to the way you should go, it's all right there. And work is a val- valuable thing. Wealth and poverty. Uh, if you're seeking wealth, uh, it's going to fly away like a uh, on the wings of a not so snow white dove. Uh, you just can't trust wealth. It is uh, it's just not there uh, for time and eternity. And then you talk about time. Used to have a song, "Time, oh t- good, good time. Where have you gone?" Well, doesn't the wisdom literature talk about time? It sure does, yeah. And one of the things that that was one of the chapters I enjoyed writing the most, uh, the chapter on time and then the chapter on death. And I guess the reason I enjoyed writing it so much is because, like everyone else in modern society, I am plagued by t- uh, what sociologists call time sickness. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> come on, man. You need some. Yeah. You need some health, biblical health. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and this idea of time sickness is so fascinating. The way time has come to be perceived in our society, uh-huh. it's this view of time in which time is always speeding up, and we're needing to move faster and faster to keep up with it. And it's a very unhealthy way of living. And of course, ancient Israel sages particularly the book of Ecclesiastes, um, they really address this. Uh, the book of Ecclesiastes, if you were to try to shuck it back to the cob, as we say in Alabama, um, <laughs> one, of, one of the main themes of Ecclesiastes is living in God's time, you know, mm-hmm. how, how to live successfully in God's ways, but also in, in God's time. And so that issue of time is frequently resurfacing. Well, yeah, he talks about uh, there's a time for everything and li- lists right. a whole lot of things there. There's a time for war and a time for peace, a time for right. love and a time for whatever. So uh, time, time is important. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. you know, it reminds yeah. me of a, of a passage uh, that I learned when I was young uh, around the family table. Only one life will soon be passed. Only right. what's done for Christ will last. That's all about time, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And when you read Ecclesiastes, the writer is, you know, constantly encouraging his readers 
to slow down and begin to perceive time um, through a through the lens of wisdom, and, and of course, the uh, the way time is perceived there is in seasons. God has, um, you know, He's created this world, and this world operates on seasons, and that means that um, seasons are transient; they're temporary. So, um, you know, we're constantly trying to recreate or recapture our youth. Uh, but a better way to understand are you making it, are you making a confession? <laughs> well, you know, it's just an example, you know, instead of trying to forever recapture our youth, you know, we understand, well, that was a season, mm-hmm. and now I'm moving into a season of maturity. You know, I'm living in this season, but now that season yeah. has come to an end. And I'm so have you arrived so- yet, uh, Ralph, at the season of maturity? <laughs> well, I'm I'm at the height of my powers. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Well, speaking of health, by the way, uh, the wisdom literature uh, deals with our health, and uh, it it actually talks about applying the Word of God as medicine to our flesh, doesn't it? It really does, and and this is another chapter that I I really love. Uh, I keep saying I love these chapters, but really the fact is I love God's Word. and uh, so Which means you love the Lord, which means you began with the fear of the Lord or you wouldn't love Him. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the, the, um, yeah the, the wisdom literature definitely has a lot to say about a faith-based life. And I think, for example, very early in the book of Proverbs, the sage invites his hearers he says, hear and accept my words so that the years of your life may be many, mm-hmm. for they are life to those who find them and healing to all their flesh. That's yeah. Proverbs 4.10 and exactly. Yeah, so there's so many places in the wisdom literature where um, the sages talk about the implications of faith for health and uh yeah, and, and, and the impact of one's belief upon one's health. Well, you know, they say laughter is good for the soul. Uh, comes right out of the book of Proverbs. A glad heart makes a cheerful countenance. And uh, there's a little song that, again, I learned when I was young, uh, talking about wearing a smile. Uh-huh. And you can smile when you can't say a word. You can smile when you cannot be heard. You can smile whether it's cloudy or fair, you can smile anytime, anywhere. So if a Christian, a professing Christian, is not smiling, it seems to me that there's a reflection of something missing of the good life in their heart. Oh, yeah. I, yeah, and, and it's fascinating. You know, people, people will argue that um, there's, there's no advantage, you know, that to being a Christian that it's all subjective, but it's really not true. Um, True. There have been many studies that have shown that spirituality and and a religious life are actually good for you, and and it's just common sense. It makes total sense um, that religious activity and church going would be healthy. Uh, I mean, just some real obvious reasons. Religious groups tend to steer people away from unhealthy and destructive behaviors. Well, that's true. And into uh, behaviors and lifestyle uh, ways. affirming. Exactly. And, and so. It includes things like fellowship and socializing. 
and prayer and volunteering and family rituals and positive and healing music. All of these things are healthy, and religious groups steer us into those positive things, and they steer us into things like prayer, which is therapeutic. There have been studies that actually show that those who pray and those who are the subject of the prayers of other people, they actually have improved um, psychological responses and even improved physical responses. Ralph, I even have in my vast filing system the cover stories, covers of America's national news magazines going back 25 to 35 years who are focusing on those things and affirming them, right. but not so much anymore. Yeah, Not well, so much anymore. True. Yeah, it's still true, though, that church attendance is associated with decreased heart disease, lower blood pressure, reduced emphysemia, uh, so reduced cirrhosis of the liver, lower suicide. I mean, Christian um, church attendance and Christian practice contributes right. to all those things. Many Absolutely. Well, and that's what uh, the wisdom of God, the wisdom of his word is all about. And so, friends, uh, again, this is a wonderful book, Ancient Wisdom for the Good Life, however you want to define that, the life that pleases the Lord and that is profitable for you and for righteousness. $23. We'll put this $25 book in your hands. It's on our website, saveus.org. Saveus.org. You can call us, 1-800-SAVE-USA. Write to us at Save America Ministries, P.O. Box 70879, Richmond, Virginia, 2. Three two five by writing a check at five dollars for postage and handling. Big thank you to Ralph Hawkins for joining us here today on Viewpoint and the plaque that I kept on my law office wall for twenty years is right from the book of Micah. It says, What does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly in the fear of the Lord? Thanks for joining us. Become a partner, send your gifts, friends, my faith to save America Ministries. Do it today. The other guy's not doing it. So how about you joining with us, making a difference as the message goes out, not only across this country, but around the world. Wisdom, God's wisdom, that's what we really need. You've been listening to Viewpoint with Chuck Grissmeyer. Viewpoint is supported by the faithful gifts of our listeners. Let me urge you to become a partner with Chuck as a voice to the church declaring vision for the nation. Join us again next time on Viewpoint as we confront the issues of America's heart and home.